The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And this week, we are reading Motive versus Opportunity, a Miss Marple short story. So this one was first published as a short story in April of 1928 in the Royal Magazine, as all of these stories have been. And then in the U.S., under a different title, this one not as fun as our last story, Drip, Drip. This one is called Where's the Catch? And it was published a couple months later in Detective Story Magazine in the U.S., also in 1928. Catherine Brobeck, let's talk about our victim. Well, this isn't a murder story. So... Darn. Yeah. I think from certain angles, you could actually argue that everyone in this story might be a plausible victim. (laughs) Perhaps even the reader? Well, I mean, always possible in some of these Tuesday Night Club stories. Catherine is not the biggest fan of the Tuesday Night Club short stories. Really not. Um, (laughs) But there is deceased in this story. So we can address him. Um, His name is Mr. Simon Claude, except that's actually not his name. He was a client of Mr. Petherick. So Mr. Petherick is the one telling this story, right? So he is the lawyer. It's his turn. He's the lawyer in the Tuesday Night Club. He's a solicitor, right? He is. A rather dry, um, exacting sort of a man. Indeed. Um, And so Mr. Simon Claude is an incredibly wealthy man. He lost his son in World War One, and then he ended up with custody of his little granddaughter, Chris, Christabel. He basically dotes on her until she's 11 years old when she then dies of pneumonia. And then Mr. Simon Claude also dies. A, a charming little story. Indeed. There's actually, it's, it's quite a long backstory. Very long um, backstory. And the backstory kind of matters. But it's also padding it out a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's it's quite a lengthy backstory for such a short, short story. Then there were other family members, and we will get to them, because we are going to talk about our suspects. Suspects, of course, not for a murder, because there is no murder here, but a potential fraud and a potentially missing will. Correct. That's that's what we have here, We and we'll get to that in a moment. But let's talk about our suspects. First up is the fabulously named... Mrs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you want to go for it? <laughs> I would say Eurydice. Yeah, I think that I think that that's right. Okay, Mrs. Eurydice Sprague. Eurydice is, I believe, she is Orpheus's wife of Greek myth, the one who he travels down to the underworld to retrieve, and then he looks back at her one time before he actually brings her back up and then she has to go back down to the underworld and then he gets torn apart by crazy drunken people at a 
Bacchanal, essentially, later on. Indeed, but, but this Mrs. Sprague is presumably <laughs> a Southern American. It's not actually specified that she's Southern, but given that that's her name and that her husband is named Absalom. Yes, they definitely <laughs> seem American, and I will actually give you another reason why I'm almost positive they're American. Oh, well, they're they're, Amer- it, they say that they're American in the book. I'm just assuming oh, that they're okay. Southern. <laughs> Although, they could also potentially be Midwestern because there is an, another literary forebear who has a very similar name to this, Miss Undine Sprague, who is the, I can't really call her the heroine, but she is the protagonist of a wonderful Edith Wharton novel, The Custom of the Country, right. which is such a fantastic novel. I actually believe a literary star of the firmament, no less shining than Jonathan Franzen, once said that you can trace a direct line from the custom of the country to the Kardashians. It's it's satirizing the culture of divorce and just of American excess and consumerism and frivolity, and it's fantastic. And, yeah, Undine Sprague. I mean, Sprague is just such a great, ugly American-sounding name. This is an ugly American. Right. And she's she's a medium. Not a small. Oh, that's terrible. Just terrible. (laughs) What's a happy medium? What? A fortune teller who just got paid. (laughs) Yep. Oh, God. So, um, Mrs. Sprague is really an important character to this story. Mm -hmm. Because she insinuates herself into Mr. Claude's life in an incredibly aggressive way. Right, yeah, so she is she is a spiritualist, and she essentially becomes the right-hand woman to Mr. Claude, who comes to believe that she is the medium by which he can communicate with his poor granddaughter, Christabel, who died at 11 years old of pneumonia. That is Mrs. Eurydice Sprague. And then we did mention her husband, Mr. Absalom, Sprague, and he just seems shiftless and shady in general. Right. He's described as being very sallow and very thin. He's not a medium. He's not a medium. And, Um, you know, just just sort of... Bad news bears. Yeah, lurks lurks around, I think. Yeah. He actually makes um, his wife seem far more suspicious than she herself even seems. Yeah, I feel like his wife is actually doing a pretty good job of putting on a good front for being a good spiritualist. And by the way, not to spoil, but it's it's never actually proven or disproven whether or not she is a legitimate spiritual right. medium. This could be the late 20s version of Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost. Mrs. Santiago. Buenos dias. I'm Oda Mae Brown. I understand you wish to contact your husband. See, si. I believe he'll be with us today. Oh, thank you. I'm feeling something. Did he know someone by the name of Anna, Consuelo, Lucita, Julieta, Josefina, Linda, Maria? Sissy, it's Mama. She is Maria. Yes! Praise God, I knew he was with his mama. Oh, my God. It's too difficult. It's two of them. I'm not sure I can do that. It's it's so trying. It's... Oh, I pay more. How much? How much? $20. Oh, way to go. Milk her for every penny. Who is that? You can hear me? Don't you hear him? I don't believe this. Hey, you. Will you? 
Hey, my name is Sam Wheat. Can you hear me? Sam Wheat. Say my name. Say it. Leave me alone. Sam Wheat. Say it. Sam Wheat. Say it. Talk to me, Otome. Say something. Sam Wheat. I swear no more cheating. I promise. I'll do anything. I'll do penance. Give me penance, but make that guy go away. No way. I mean, Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost was kind of a fraudulent medium until Patrick Swayze, the ghost, met her and then made her legit. Is that what the plot of that movie was? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, ceramics are so romantic, don't you think? Nothing like a potter's wheel to get me in the mood. And nothing like having clay-coated hands to, like, really set the mood. Mm, Earthy, yeah. So, So, um, outside of the Sprags, um, we have all of uh, Mr. Claude's relatives. Essentially what happens is he also has a brother who has died. And so his brother had three children, two girls and a boy. And they were already pretty much grown. But um, Claude, sort of grief-stricken, has taken them under his wing. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's Mrs. Grace Garrett, and she's one of the three of these siblings. And she, you know, has been married away pretty much successfully to Mr. Philip Garrett. And he's kind of a linchpin of this because he's the most responsible person. Yeah, he's the one who sort of gets things done. And Mr. Petherick ends up calling upon him to intervene over this potentially fraudulent spiritual medium. Molly, you in danger, girl. We'll get there in a second. Then we also have George Claude, who is the nephew and the second heir. He is a banker. And then the final Claude is Miss Mary Claude, who is a caregiver mm-hmm. to Mr. Simon Claude. Indeed. And then of the other potential suspects, there are really only two. We have Emma Gaunt, who's the long-term housekeeper. She's middle-aged. Mm-hmm. And we have Lucy David, who is described as fresh and buxom, hmm. which, <laughs> okay. Um, but she's <laughs> the um, cook for the household. Buxom is one of those words that I think it is now impossible not to use ironically. <laughs> Can you ever use the word buxom non-ironically in this day and age? I don't think so. I don't think so. I also think statuesque is a really bad word. Well, statuesque is a backhanded compliment, you know? But isn't buxom Um, also a little bit? No, I mean, I think buxom just means you're sort of... Well-bosomed? Yeah, zoftig is even more. I mean, zoftig literally means pleasingly plump, right? You could, I guess, argue that buxom is essentially a slight euphemism for zoftig. All right, let's talk about the world as it appears to be. So, as we mentioned, Mr. Petherick, the lawyer, the solicitor, is the one telling the story. Everyone immediately assumes it's going to have a legal twist to it. Joyce is very not excited to hear a legal tale. She's like, I'm an artist. That's boring. Law is boring. She's like, you're going to talk about something from, like, 1881? Yeah. I'm also an idiot because I'm involved with Raymond West. So, clearly anything that comes out of my mouth doesn't really count. So 
Mr. Petherick had this longtime client, Simon Claude. The name has been changed, right? And he was very close to Mr. Claude, but he hadn't been in touch with him recently. And we, when he runs into this client, he quickly finds out why, which is that he is taken up with this American medium who does seances and purports anyway to convey messages from the beyond coming from Mr. Claude's dead granddaughter, little Christabel, who died of pneumonia. What are you doing? What do you think you're doing to me? Hey, look, if you think I'd come all the way down here for my health, you're out of your mind. Sam's dead, okay? He's dead. Tell her I love her. He says he loves you. <sighs> Sam would never say that. Ditto, tell her ditto. That was ditto. Ditto. And, and little Christabel also conveniently sends messages about how trusting he should be toward the Spraggs. Molly, you in danger, girl. Right, how great the Spraggs are and how much she really loves them. So Mr. Claude's remaining family members are rather alarmed by this development. Understandably. Yeah, yeah. The Spraggs, they haven't actually accepted any money for their labor, but they've moved in. <laughs> More or less. So mm-hmm. that's perhaps a bit alarming. And Mr. Petherick agrees. He is also alarmed. Right. And they appear to be just generally influencing Claude's decision making. Right. So what Petherick does is he calls up Philip Garrett, who is the niece's husband. And he basically says, okay, you know, I don't mean to be cynical. Like maybe there's something else going on here. Ditto! but I understand that you're worried, I'm worried, what can you do about it? And so Garrett invites down a university professor, Professor Longman, to observe, basically. Mm -hmm. And the results are not clear. Inconclusive. (laughs) Inconclusive results. Uh, So that was a kind of giant waste of time. Yeah, again, perhaps a little bit of padding in this story. Yeah, just just possibly, just possibly. Seems like maybe Dame Agatha, not yet a dame, but she had a deadline. Just added (laughs) some, added some. (laughs) She had a word count that she was shooting for, and uh, it's possible. (laughs) So um, basically, during all this, Claude takes a turn for the worse. Although he kind of doesn't, but he thinks he does, and so he calls in Patherick to rewrite his will. And Petherick is really upset about this, and so he tries to stall. Right. He's like, you think about that, and I'll get all the materials together. We'll figure it out. And Claude is like, no, 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 no. I already wrote it down. Here it is. And at that point, being a well, good lawyer. He, well, but he has not written it down. Well, he, he wrote down some in notes. Pencil. He had notes yeah. in pencil. Yeah. So Mr. Petherick has to, at that point, you know, he knows that, that Mr. Claude is of sound mind. 
he can't really stall any longer and still be going by the moral code of a lawyer. So he reluctantly agrees to draft a more formal document right then and there. And Mr. Claude... Claude ends up handwriting the new will with Petherick witnessing it. And then the other witnesses are the housemaid and the family cook. But they need a pen. He needs a pen to write the formal will, right? And then for them to witness the whole thing. And he asks Semagon, the housekeeper, can you grab my pen in the desk? And she goes to her drawer and he's like, not that drawer. And she opens the drawer and she's like, no, 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 it's right here. And he says, well, someone put it away wrong last time. And at that point, I'm thinking, well, obviously this is important because this is such a boring exchange and it's a short story. So clearly this is the crux of the mystery. And she goes back and hands him the pen and they write the will and they witness the will And Mr. Petherick puts it in a blue envelope. And then there are a series of (laughs) ways in which perhaps the blue envelope was switched with another envelope or the contents of that blue envelope were removed and replaced with something else and subsequently destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if I feel the need to go through every single one of those because they all end up not actually being relevant. Here's the thing. What Claude does to Petherick's dismay is he gives 5,000 pounds to each of the two nieces and nephew. Mm -hmm. And then he gives the rest of his entire fortune to the Sprags. Four million dollars! Oh my God! What am I going to do with this money? You know, I'm going to buy the building. No, no, wait. I'm going to buy the block. I'm going to make my sister go to a fat farm because, you know, she's way too big. Whoa, wait. What are you going to do? Yeah, I'm going to buy the building. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, mate. Got an idea. Take the check out of your purse. Oh, you're right. You're right. Take it out. Put it where nobody can get it. No, no. Endorse it. No, if I endorse it, then if I drop it, somebody will get it. No, I just. It's not your money. I never said you were going to get the money. This is blood money. I was killed for this money. Now endorse the check. Yeah, but Sam, what are you going to do with it? Look over there. To your left. I'm giving this $4 million to a bunch of nuns. So that is what the revision is. And so then the series of possible confusions basically involved that Petherick sees Mrs. Sprague messing with a chair cover near his overcoat. And the envelope was in his pocket, but then it wasn't actually messed with at all. It was fine. And then Mr. Sprague shows up at the office when the envelope is on his desk but then it turns it also out seems fine then. totally fine, and then he locks it in a safe for months. Because it turns out Claude doesn't die. Even though Claude has been terrified, he's going to die right. that day, and that's why he has to rewrite the will. It's another. He doesn't two die months. for another two months. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, and the issue obviously is that the only people who had the opportunity to switch out the will or destroy the contents of that blue envelope are the people who benefited from the will or the Sprague. So that doesn't really make sense. So let's just get to it. So what happens two months later when Claude dies is that Mr. Petherick goes into the safe, he pulls out the blue envelope, he opens it up, and it's a blank sheet of paper. Mm Mm-hmm. Correct. What? Let's talk about the world as it actually is. Well, Miss Marple immediately kind of laughs in the story. Yeah, she just bursts out into laughter. Yep. They're all a little alarmed. Yeah, they are. Because she's also, you know, really busy knitting. 
they're worried she's going to drop a stitch. <laughs> well, she's worried she's going to drop a she's stitch. She's very worried she's going to drop a stitch, actually. So um, the question becomes, if the people who had the opportunity didn't have a motive, and the people who had the motive didn't have an opportunity, why are there blank sheets of paper in the envelope? Who stole it? And the answer is nobody did. Because of that pesky pen. Invisible ink, everybody. And that's what Miss Marple basically just shouts to the room laughingly, like any child. It's not even invisible ink. It's disappearing ink. Yes, it's disappearing ink. Which, is that even a thing? Yeah. I think invisible ink is a thing. I don't even think disappearing ink really is a thing. Um. Like the ink. I think it is. Vanishes permanently from well, the paper? Well, it would leave. It would leave. So just like invisible ink isn't really a thing either, because if you hold up... But it is, because it's invisible in a certain light or from a certain angle or right, something, but it's, but it's still there. it's not invisible. If you put it up to light, you're still well, going to I see mean. it. that's what I mean. But I don't think disappearing ink could truly disappear, which means that the will would still be there in some way. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think the story doesn't really address that. I think that if you probably held it up to the right light... Are you saying that there's a hole to poke in motive versus opportunity? <laughs> this... <laughs> I am, I am this saying... This Christy crown jewel of a short story. I am suggesting that there might be a slight problem there if anybody bothered to look at the paper a little bit closely, but... They probably would have seen some, yeah. It would have been possible, I think, to figure out what had actually been written on there in, in this ink. I don't think it can at physically disappear. At the disappear. very least, it's going to have left, yeah, yeah, pressure points on the paper, right. for sure. So I actually did a little bit of research on this, and... The usual way that disappearing or evanescent ink, as it is referred to by Miss Marple in the short story, the usual way that it seems to work is by altering the pH of the paper. So the ink is at a different pH when it is in solution in the pen than when it dries on the paper. And by either making that environment more acidic or more basic, I actually think it's more basic in the case of disappearing ink, you could then make it appear. So actually that is an argument I think in favor of the functionality of the disappearing ink in this story in that perhaps the writing really was Invisible as a default, unless something had been applied to the paper to change the pH environment. It's not like you could just put it in a different light and you would have seen the writing, although the indentation uh, from the pen is still a potential issue. But in any case, just wanted to mention that since it does speak somewhat in favor of the mechanism by which this short story functions. So it was important that Emma Gaunt went to that wrong drawer and picked out this pen because what we learn subsequently and what Mr. Petherick learns, because again, he's the one telling the story and he has to know the solution. That's the rule of the Tuesday Night Club, unless you're Raymond West and you're an idiot. And (laughs) so Philip Garrod tells this hypothetical story about a friend, friends of his, and how they had this really loyal housekeeper 
who was instructed if she wanted to help them out with a sort of sticky situation going on in the household that anytime she was ever asked to sign for anything, she should go to this specific drawer in the desk and take out a pen that was identical to the right pen, to the correctly functioning pen, and use that pen if she was asked to sign something. Obviously, the only time she would be asked to sign something was for a will. And, of course, from this, we are to infer that Emma Gaunt, the loyal housekeeper, substituted disappearing ink for the will, which is why it had blank pages. There was never a switcheroo, and Mr. Petherick knows exactly what he's saying, but they never say it outright, so he does not have to report it in any way, even though he is obviously a law-abiding citizen and a lawyer. And it's implied that the Spraggs got nothing. Think I'm giving this four million dollars to a bunch of nuns? And the right. nephew and nieces well, got the original the will held. Yeah, yeah. So they they got the entire inheritance. But again, I stick to my theory that you would have been able to see something, and I think the Sprags would probably be rolling in it right now. Four million dollars! Oh my god! What am I going to do with this money? I, you know, I'm going to buy the building. You know, it's really good if they're giant con artists that this solution happened. However, you know, if Mrs. Sprague was really channeling little Christabel from beyond the grave, kind of sucks for her. Ditto! Mr. Pedrick makes a very superstitious effort, I think, to keep insisting through the whole story that he doesn't know one way or the other. Maybe he might believe in spiritualists. What may tell her? Tell her she's wearing the shirt that I spilt the margarita on and the earrings I gave her for Christmas. Molly, Sam says to tell you you're wearing the shirt that he spilled the margarita on and the earrings he gave you for Christmas. Just see, I'm not a fake. Not about this. Give me a penny, quick. What? Push a penny under the door now. You be talking about push a penny under the door. Just do it. So heartwarming. Magical. Well, join us next week for another Miss Marple short story. This is actually the final story, number six within the Tuesday Night Club series. And it is being narrated by none other than... Miss Jane Marple herself. herself. So I am really excited for this one, obviously. That one is called The Thumb Mark of St. Peter. And in the meantime, you can contact us so many ways via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is at Robcat. We're also on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And on Facebook, our Facebook page is allaboutagatha. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.